Hey, it's Mark. Whether you're talking about pizza, electric vehicles, or booking a flight online, consumers tend to be pretty sensitive to costs when making purchases. That is, unless brand loyalty comes into play. A huge part of brands' value proposition is the safety they provide in chaotic times. That's one reason why, during the pandemic, the reputations of many of the big drug makers improved. When a crisis hits, people rally to security and what's safe. Indeed, the brand loyalty dynamic applies to pharma and biotech brands, which often need to rely on technology to deliver more personalized data that can provide a convenient, appropriate experience for patients. Even before the pandemic, healthcare companies of all sorts were grappling with the effects of consumerism and how to modify their operations in order to keep pace with the experiences people have with other sectors, like retail, automotive, or financial services. Borrowing the strategies and lessons learned from other industries could pay significant dividends for healthcare brands in the long run, but that pivot needs to happen sooner rather than later. Our guest this week is Tess McGibbon, Director of Thought Leadership and Healthcare at the LASIK Group, an Ogilvy Experience Company. My colleague Jack O'Brien spoke with McGibbon about loyalty programs in healthcare, what executives need to know about putting these processes in place, and what can be learned from other industries. Unless she's here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today I'll discuss the White House's new plan to tackle xylazine, a veterinary tranquilizer known as Trank that's fueling the drug overdose crisis. And Jack, what's on tap for the healthcare social media front? This week we're treading on threads. Twitter community notes comes from President Biden's healthcare record. And the FDA is asked to investigate Logan Paul's caffeinated energy drink. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I'm the digital editor at MMM, and I'm joined by a very special guest today, Tess McGibbon, Director of Thought Leadership and Healthcare at the LASIK Group and Ogilvy Experience Company. Tess, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Jack. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on the show. And I know that the conversation that we're going to have here is largely focused around loyalty and uh how it extends into the healthcare realm. I wanted to start off by asking you about the white paper that you just published in terms of loyalty programs and how healthcare companies are going about pursuing those. Can you kind of give us a high-level overview, and then maybe we can drill down into some specifics? Yeah. You know, when I first started the LASIK group, within about three months, I said, oh my gosh, there's such an opportunity for healthcare, which is where I'd spent my previous 20-plus years. And Really what I'm addressing is there's opportunity across every single sector from B2B, B2C, payer, provider, pharma, biotech, uh, even healthcare retail to adapt loyalty strategies that have for decades been very successful outside of the healthcare realm and bring customers closer to your brand, create that brand loyalty and that brand love by layering in value, benefits, recognition and personalization, appreciating your customers, whomever they may be, um, your their business and their loyalty, their continued business. It's a customer retention application that is super effective. It's so interesting to hear you talk about something that I think a lot of people outside the healthcare realm might regard as just kind of common sense. You want to build that rapport with your customers, but obviously healthcare always a little bit slower to the game than other industries. I'm curious when it when it comes to putting in some of these strategies, what have been maybe some of the best practices or most effective approaches uh, to taking on some of these loyalty programs? 
outside of healthcare or inside of healthcare? Maybe we start with outside and then maybe some that have translated into healthcare. You know, the best strategies uh, or best loyalty programs outside of healthcare are ones that bring the customer closer, engages them beyond a transaction, right? It's keeping that dialogue uh, in between those transactions. And today's loyalty is more emotional than ever. It's experience. It is uh, personalization. It is surprising and delighting your customers. Um, every loyalty program has to have three critical elements, and that is they have to have a compelling value proposition. They have to be financially uh, feasible and operationally viable. And when those three pieces come together, that's how um, how you build a successful loyalty program. It starts with customer insights, looking at where your customers are, where do they want to hear from you? Um, I know you had a, a podcast recently about that omni-channel marketing in healthcare, and that's really important, hitting, you know, um, hitting people where they are in the moment with relevant and compelling content, offers, etc. For instance, surprise and delight is an element of most uh, loyalty programs that lets your customers know in surprising and delighting ways that you appreciate them. It might be a gift. It may be an exclusive experience. It's really important for loyalty programs to be truly differentiated from their competitors because uh, that sea of sameness can cloud people's appreciation for your offers. I think it's interesting, too, just how that can translate into healthcare, because, again, we have a very competitive industry on our hands where hospitals are fighting for, you know, their share of patients. Certainly pharma groups want to be able to reach the right patients the same way that their competitors do, too. I'm curious from your perspective, maybe what has translated the best into healthcare, if there are any examples in terms of loyalty programs or some of the rollouts that you may have seen. Yeah, you know, it's different across sectors, you know. I would say some of probably the top performing loyalty strategies in healthcare is on the payer side. Uh, Humana Go365 incentivizes and rewards healthy behaviors, actions in the community, and prevention, right? And you accrue rewards as you complete these things. Um, they were in for, you know, they ranked number one in Forrester's payer report. And another successful one is Kaiser Permanentes. They're a provider and a payer. Um, and they have um, been rewarding their plan members with, you know, $500 per adult in the household. And you can get that by way of a gift card or a statement credit every year. And both, um, both organizations have very high favorable ratings and loyalty from their members. One interesting finding, and I know it was in the infographic that came along with the white paper that you authored, and this will probably upset some of the people in our audience, is the fact that one third of healthcare consumers don't have any preference when it comes to brands, and that's growing. Can you talk about that trend? Because I talk to a lot of leaders, especially on the, the marketing side, they're like, we want more brand loyalty. We want people to identify with you know such and such brand, and they might be troubled to hear that. Yeah, it, it was an interesting study. In, I think it was 2018, one third of healthcare consumers had no brand preference to a health system. And by 2021, that had grown north of 
And so one of the reasons is people don't feel like a person. They feel like a number, right? They're lacking that personal experience. They, you know, there's another study that showed someone would switch providers because the office staff and reception was rude. I think the perception of cost, of feeling like a number, not a, a name. Um, and I also think ratings and reviews are far more engaged these days. People are shopping for healthcare. Um, but one of the biggest factors is everybody has all of these experiences outside of healthcare and the pandemic accelerated that expectation from the consumer world to the healthcare world. It's, uh, it's so interesting that you talk about that because we've obviously seen the likes of Amazon and Apple and Google, like, you know, all these non-traditional players coming in. I think that's been a big fear from leaders I've talked to is, oh, wait, they already nail it when it comes to consumer experiences in the retail world, in the tech space. And if they can do that in healthcare, you know, we're, we're kind of in trouble. Right. And, you know, one of the things, speaking of Amazon, they acquired one medical last year, which is a mm -hmm. suite of primary care clinics that have very unique offerings. It is it is a paid subscription, but you can use it on top of your insurance um, and employers can also provide it to their employees as an added benefit. And um, I think with Amazon um, acquiring them, it's gonna be really interesting to watch what they do with that. Um, it, it, even further personalizing it, um, I think Yes, healthcare does lag, to your point. But one of the challenges is privacy. And until people explicitly, especially within healthcare, give you permission to talk to them about their specific healthcare needs, that is 100% has to be an explicit opt-in, right? But the mm -hmm. data shows that 60, more than 60% of consumers are willing to trade that really personal data for a better experience. And, and like you said, experience drives so much of how people interact in healthcare, whether that's you know getting their prescription drugs, going to the hospital, going to a checkup, things of that nature. I did kind of want to go back on the branding aspect for a second. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with the um, chief branding officer at Moderna, and they've launched their, their campaign. And she had talked about the fact that they really want people to start identifying as you know Moderna patients, people that got their COVID vaccine. They're like, I'm Moderna gang, I'm Pfizer gang. And yep. it's interesting to kind of hear that that's an approach I think we're seeing in pharma, but like to your point, consumers are, you know, they're kind of agnostic at this point for the large part in terms of like where it is, as long as they get reliable care that they, they like. Right. Right. You know, pharma is so interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunity for loyalty strategy strategies, to be honest, um, in a number of different ways. One of which being, I'm, I'm really thinking out of the box here, but um, what if a consortium of Pharma companies partnered with payers to incentivize medication adherence, for instance, right? Um, the, the pharma companies can't do that themselves, but payers can. And at the end of the day, every year, medication non-adherence costs this country billions and billions of dollars. And is there a way to get that engagement, get that incentive, get that reward for their healthy behaviors? everybody wins. You know, providers are paying out fewer claims, adverse events, and all the 
other comorbidities that can result from not taking your regimen. Um, prescriptions are being refilled. So that hits the bottom line, right? And, um, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity too with clinical trials in the same respect, you know, in the same respect, retaining those people in trials. That's defection is one of the very biggest um, challenges in that space, right? Um, loyalty strategies can keep those people much closer to the trial, much closer to your brand. And the other opportunity with, with pharma, you know, anyone who is taking a, a regular medication or they're treating a chronic or terminal illness and, you know, working to extend their lives, programs that create community, that have that surprise and delight. Perhaps someone is going through a cancer regime and can join a program where they're recognized at their milestones, right? Where they're getting encouraging emails between treatments. Um, their caretakers are getting um, outreach as well. It's it's really creating a, a, a wellness ecosystem, you know? And, and then people say, I went through the Kytro brand, you know, program, and it got me everything that I needed. And they took care of me and they made me feel loved and they made me feel safe. And that's, that's where loyalty program strength is. It is the engine through which all of these communications and experiences are delivered and people opt in. So they, they're telling you they want to hear from you. It's interesting to hear you talk about kind of the thinking outside the box. And those, are, I mean, again, those kind of seem like common sense approaches. Let's target medication adherence. Let's target uh, clinical trial enrollment, two of the biggest issues that we hear about from the pharma leaders that we talk to. I'm curious, obviously, these are a lot of ambitious ideas, I think, for the healthcare industry, but, uh, you know, applicable ones. Are there any sort of misconceptions around loyalty programs that you'd like to dispel for health leaders in our audience, or maybe the skeptics that are like, yeah, that sounds good, but... You know, there's always a but at the end of it. <laughs> well, I think because the size of their audiences is, is so large, right? It just seems impossible and things are slower um, in healthcare. But these really are doable. You know, HIPAA concerns. If you have an explicit opt-in, it's really not that. You've overcome a big challenge right there, right? Um, taking um, data, third-party data, public health data, um, looking at where things are trending. You can really localize these efforts and start small, you know? And, and I think the overwhelming nature is, is like, oh my God, we just could never pull this off. We were consulting with a health system, a very large health system and, and IDN in the Southern part of the country. And we were offering different suggestions on how they can bring their communities closer. And we said, Start with a disease state, maybe, right? Maybe just diabetes, right? Which is more prevalent in certain pockets in the South. Maybe just diabetes. Work on what kind of content is going to be meaningful. What kind of community is going to um, be drawn to you? What pilot? Start with pilots and, and, and scale from there. The overwhelming size of the healthcare audience, I think, can just immediately shut down ideas that could be really, really beneficial. There was, uh, I think that I'm sorry to interrupt. I just think that's something that I wanted to emphasize for our audience is the fact that sometimes it can seem so overwhelming, but really some of these, again, ambitious ideas can have payoffs if, if 
you know, actually follow through. Right. We, we did a pilot. We you know, did all the, the research and the insights and the qualitative and quantitative um, research to, to vet the strategy that we had designed and built a pilot for a global med tech company um, a couple of years ago. And that's B2B, right? That was from the med tech company to IDMs. And it had a 100% um, adoption and, and thumbs up from the provider system saying, yes, yes, I love it. And from the sales team that said, this gave me a reason to connect again between those transactions. Brand loyalty is so much more than a transaction. There was a study, I think it was, it was Deloitte or Accenture um, a couple years ago that laid out that now is the opportunity for healthcare organizations to really make a bold move in their customer experience, whether it's B2B or B2C. And then they will recoup, you know, five to 10% before COVID revenues in a short amount of time, but it's going to be the first people that get there, the first people that are striking boldly, right? Mm-hmm. As it so is often the case. Um, Tess, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. I wanted to leave you with just the final word, if there's any sort of parting advice to the leaders in our audience, the decision makers, as they go about you know, either thinking about implementing a loyalty program or actually doing it themselves, just anything you want to leave them with. Well, I think if it's something that you're considering, um, and again, whether it's B2B or B2C, any sector within healthcare, um, the demand is there. Um, Customers, whether they're healthcare consumers or your business customers or partners, um, people want to feel appreciated for their business and they want to be recognized as valuable to your organization. And, you know, taking the first step may be a little scary. It is doable in healthcare. And again, you want to just make sure that you're working with a partner that is is confirming that the approach you're taking is compelling in its value, is financially viable and operationally feasible. Baby steps are okay. They're the best place to start, you know, validate what you're doing and then scale from there. Taking that incremental approach is always a a very valuable step. Well, Tess, again, thank you so much for being on the show and talking to us about loyalty programs in healthcare. And certainly if we start to see them rolling out for some of the brands and uh, companies that we cover, we'd love to have you back on the show to discuss. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The White House is launching a new plan to tackle xylazine, a drug commonly known as Trank, to help stem the increasing number of overdose deaths in the U.S. Xylazine is a veterinary tranquilizer not approved for human use, but in recent years it's emerged as a deadly drug that's often combined with fentanyl. Deaths from fentanyl laced with xylazine increased by 276% between January 2019 and June 2020, according to new data from the CDC. In a statement, the Office of National Drug Control Policy Director, Dr. Rahul Gupta, noted the White House has been, quote, working tirelessly to create the best plan of attack to address this dangerous and deadly substance head on. He added that the new federal plan employs the best evidence-based practices and aims to save lives. 
The plan rallies around six main pillars, testing, data collection, evidence-based prevention and harm reduction, supply reduction, scheduling, and research. The ultimate goal is to eliminate fentanyl combined with xylazine as an emerging threat and to reduce xylazine-linked deaths by 15% once 2025 rolls around. That includes developing new tests for clinical settings, such as rapid tests for xylazine and fentanyl that can be used in real time in clinical care. Identifying xylazine overdose reversal agents, the way Narcan can treat opioid overdoses, and boosting capacity among first responders. But the plan also calls for assistance among healthcare providers. The White House urged physicians and hospitals to be more alert to signs of xylazine among overdose patients and to know how to direct them to opioid use disorder treatment services. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Jack? Hi there, Mark. So as of this recording, Meta's Twitter rival Threads has overtaken ChatGPT as the fastest growing online platform with more than 100 million signups in the week since its launch. By the time you listen to this, that number will undoubtedly be higher. Coinciding with the emergence of the first true rival to Twitter since Elon Musk's takeover of the site in October is a considerable traffic drop-off on the Bird app, according to Cloudflare CEO Matthew Prince. This has only intensified the ongoing war of words between Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Musk, who has threatened a lawsuit against Meta over claims that the social media giant used Twitter's trade secrets to create threats. The Zuckerberg-Musk rivalry, which was first teased as a potential cage match, has now devolved into the latter calling the former a cuck and suggesting a, quote, literal dick measuring contest. So clearly things are going well. But while all of this makes for a sensational amount of mainstream headlines, memes about whichever social media platform owning billionaire you support, and yet another app to download on your phone, it does beg the most obvious question for our purposes, what does it mean for medical marketing? Currently, advertising is off-limits on the text-based platform, but that is likely a change in the future, which means marketers will need to be ready to hop into action. I took the question to Fishbowl, the virtual professional community app, to see what those in the industry think, and one response stood out to me. A copy supervisor wrote, quote, I think Twitter is still waiting to be dethroned. Twitter's power was never the reach in the way that Facebook's was. It had much fewer users. Twitter's power was the profile of its user base, which included many national media figures, academics, business figures, politicians, funny posters, and assorted movers and shakers. The app that manages to catch a critical mass of those figures will be the one. And as of right now, no single app has managed to capture that migration. Similarly, our colleagues at Campaign reached out to advertising executives for their thoughts, and there was a general agreement that while Threads isn't Twitter yet, it has the resources and momentum to do serious damage to Twitter's market position like no other platform has before. And while Twitter is taking its lumps, the site does have one group in its corner, the Taliban. Its leader tweeted Monday morning that Twitter has the privilege of freedom of speech as well as the public nature and credibility compared to the, quote, intolerant policy like Meta. So now, Lesh, I'm going to put you in the uncomfortable position of following the Taliban with kind of reframing the conversation here on basically where we go with threads. I think we're all kind of in this waiting game of it's emerged. It's got a lot of signups. But what does it mean for our audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're just kind of at the start of it. Obviously, the huge, um, you know, sign up numbers that we've seen in the last week or so is very striking. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if it ends up being sort of a passing fad, you know, where people kind of use it for a little bit and then don't use it much anymore. Or if it does end up gaining um, 
sort of gaining a lot of traction. Um, but if anything, it goes to show how social media has become increasingly fractured. You know, it doesn't really revolve around one main media platform any, or social media platform anymore like Facebook. Um, and I think Elon Musk's attempt to kind of make Twitter into that isn't working out very well. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, it if they do end up um, taking on more advertisers, what that's going to look like for the industry. Mark, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, thanks, Jack. It's, it's interesting uh, considering your interv- interview with Tess about brand loyalty. Um, you know, the, it, I think those uh, principles also apply to social media platforms. You know, there really is a uh, little brand loyalty amongst them. Um, and especially, you know, with all the chaos uh, that's been happening uh, on Twitter over the last several months, um, uh, you know, a lot of advertisers have, have fled, obviously, and that's created an opportunity for Facebook to move in here uh, with with threads. And, uh, you know, as, as Lesha said, one of the big questions is whether um, moderation will be better uh, on threads and whether that's likely to please advertisers. You know, certainly certain moves, um, you know, with all the, um, you know, brand safety issues uh, over the past months uh, that, that have gone on on Twitter have hurt advertising on the platform. And obviously this is an opportunity uh, for threads to court new ones or, or to court some of those, uh, some of those same ones. Um, so that's, that's one of the big questions that, you know, we're going to look at to see, you know, whether, um, and to what extent, uh, they're able to sign up. I think some of them already have, um, you know, because obviously brand safety is a big issue, uh, for, for, for brands, for advertisers. Um, and I think they're, they're already flooded threads as it's open to new users, you know, 70 million, uh, new users. Was that the, the count? I it, think was, it was 30 million as of last week. It's, it's over a hundred million now. And, and kind of to that point, Mark, I think it's interesting that you bring up the point about moderation because we've seen that Twitter has obviously become largely unsafe for brands, you know, in terms of where their ads are being placed against other ads or content, or, you know, even just the nature of Elon Musk's posting. But then you have something like threads that emerge that is very meta heavy, where it's, you know, I I would say almost sanitized, at least from my experience of growing, of going on threads, it's not the same zip or bite that Twitter has, but it's definitely safer than Twitter is. There's definitely a lot less, you know, pollution in terms of the content that you're reading. So it's, it's how do you balance that? You know, is that something that Meta is going to prioritize or are they going to say we'd rather play, you know, safe than try and get into the muck with Twitter on that front? Yeah. If, if they can present a more polished uh, social media experience uh, and cut down on the toxicity that we've seen with Twitter, uh, they may very well steal the show uh, in terms of uh, ad money. We'll see. And I'd be remiss to remind our audience that you can follow MMM on threads at MMM online. So if that's your new platform of choice, go find us there. You're going to find a lot of new great content, including this podcast up there. And you've got another item uh, about Twitter, right, Jack? Yeah. So as is often the case for politicians, their bombastic rhetoric didn't match their actual legislative agenda or voting record. Last Friday evening, the at POTUS account for President Biden tweeted, on my watch, healthcare is a right and not a privilege in this country. Then came the inevitable community note. The Twitter feature tagged the post with a two paragraph note. The Twitter feature tagged the post with a two sentence note. Joe Biden has never publicly supported universal health care or Medicare for all and has suggested he would veto bills that implement such a system. His stated policy goal is affordable health care achieved by expanding existing programs like the ACA and Medicare. Some will remember that Biden ran and won in 2020 on a moderate policy platform that emphasized strengthening the Affordable Care Act instead of embracing the call for Medicare for all pushed by Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. While this may have endeared him to centrist Democrats and independent voters, progressives have been less forgiving. 
The situation prompted one Twitter user to compare the community note to a highlight reel of Vince Carter dunking. And that's really what got my attention. I didn't see the original tweet in the community note. I just saw Vince Carter highlights from the early 2000s. It was transported back in time. But it does call to mind that healthcare is not immune on Twitter. And if you say something like that, community notes will come for you and then the users will come for you. Yeah. Is, is that AI generated? What? The Vince Carter <laughs> dunking? No, the, community the, notes. the community no, notes. Community notes is something yeah. that Twitter actually does, which I think is interesting just in terms of going back to the conversation about moderation. There's not a lot of it, but occasionally that they'll is hop one in. of the new things they added yeah. with Elon Musk's takeover. And they'll even do it on mm-hmm. his tweets, too, which is yeah. extraordinarily ironic. Imagine paying forty four billion dollars for your own site to tell you that you're wrong on something. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like a little self-policing. Yeah. And then our final story, the healthcare industry could be witness to one of the most unusual matchups in recent times, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Food and Drug Administration against influencer Logan Paul. Over the weekend, Schumer sent a letter to the FDA calling on the agency to investigate Prime Energy, Paul's drink brand, due to potentially dangerous levels of caffeine. Quote, Prime Energy drink has so much caffeine that it could endanger kids' health, but it's being marketed to kids. Parents and pediatricians are worried, Schumer said in a social media post on Sunday evening. He pressed the FDA to look into the energy drinks, quote, absurd caffeine content, as well as its marketing towards kids on social media. Schumer's call for an FDA investigation marks a public challenge to the popular energy drink backed by Paul and fellow YouTuber KSI, who have nearly 50 million subscribers combined across their primary channels. Neither influencer has publicly commented on the call for an investigation, and a prime representative did not immediately respond to a request for comment from the Associated Press. Launched last January, Prime Energy is available in six different flavors with a 12-pack retailing for $30 on GNC's website. According to the drink's nutritional facts, a can of Prime Energy has zero sugar and 300 milligrams of electrolytes, but also has 200 milligrams of caffeine, which is the equivalent of two 8-ounce cups of brewed black coffee. While the Mayo Clinic says that on average 400 milligrams of caffeine per day is safe for adults, the drug affects people differently, including children. Prime Energy also comes with a warning label that urges users to drink responsibly and indicates that it is, quote, not recommended for children under the age of 18. Since its debut last year, the drink brand has been a runaway success, with Paul claiming that Prime has generated worldwide sales north of $250 million, including $45 million in January 2023 alone. The viral popularity of the drink has led to shortages across the U.K., with supermarkets imposing buying restrictions and people reselling the drinks for a higher price in the secondary market. Additionally, some schools in the UK and Australia have banned the drinks due to concerns voiced by pediatricians about health impacts on young people and kids. Still, the brand has accrued a massive online fan base with 1.7 million followers on Instagram, as well as key partnerships with the USC, the Los Angeles Dodgers, Arsenal, and FC Barcelona. In addition to a promotional appearance at WrestleMania 39, the two also starred in a 30-second ad supporting prime hydration during the Super Bowl. All this is to say... I think we have a very unlikely beef here between Chuck Schumer and Logan Paul. Lesha, where do you want to go with this? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I want to point out that the uh, 200 milligrams of caffeine in this prime energy drink is six times the amount of caffeine in a can of Coca-Cola, just to further put that into context. Um, So I think, you know, Schumer's call for the FDA to look into it isn't too unwarranted. Um, I know that there's also been some research uh, showing that uh, energy drink consumption can can have adverse health effects, especially if you're mixing energy energy drinks with alcohol. And if anyone remembers the Four loco conversation about a decade ago, um, you know, there were some studies coming around 
around coming out around that time, linking energy drink consumption to ER visits, specifically when, you know, those energy drinks were linked with alcohol and for loco was kind of both in, in the same container. So um, it'll be interesting to see uh, if this gets the same neg- negative attention that for loco did that ended up that being pulled from, you know, stores. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming around again. Yeah, I think the uh, looking at the policy statements of uh, some of the pediatric um, physician groups, uh, they you know recommend uh, really carefully uh, restricting you know the amount of caffeine uh, ingested uh, by kids under twelve, um, and, you know, and and, and energy drinks uh, for all children and teens. You know, so the fact that you know this crime you know has such a uh, um, concentrated uh, amount of this of that substance, um, and uh, and parents, you know, don't really have any control over it. You know, it's 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 just a bad combination. Uh, and it's the summertime, and it's hot, and you know, we all want to keep our kids hydrated and everything else. And it's just, uh, you know, I I think this is actually a good opportunity for a little oversight. You ask me. <laughs> and, it, and it's tough. I've had conversations with, you know, some parents in the office as it relates to this. And they've talked about, you know, how popular, you know, the Paul brothers are amongst, you know, kids of a certain age and especially the prime brands. And, and it is important to differentiate that there is the energy drink versus the hydration, which doesn't have any caffeine in it. But it really is, you know, Schumer is calling to attention that marketing towards kids, which, again, the Paul brothers have an outsized influence. And, you know, if they're being told oh, this is the drink of the summer. This is the thing you got to have. And their friends are drinking and stuff. There is an amount of peer pressure that comes with that. It does go back into the four loco of it all where it's like, yeah, these products that come out with an insane level of caffeine. And I say this is somebody that doesn't drink caffeine. It's it's a very a muddy situation. In addition to the fact that they have all these, you know, sponsorships with brands like WrestleMania, the Super Bowl ad, these very well-known sports franchises. It's, it's, it's quite the situation at play. Jack, you're, you're lucky that you don't need caffeine. That's why I'm so mellow. No, it's an advantage. You save a lot of money that way. <laughs> For sure. But uh, kids are very susceptible, obviously, to these uh, brand tie-ins. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, social media influencers, sports, um, or, you know, just kind of appealing to kids, you know, through, you know, some of the, uh, you know, fruity flavors, like, you know, we've seen some of the vaping brands do, um, it, uh, you know, you just can't do that. You know, you can't, you can't do that without any repercussions. I'm not, I'm not an FTC commissioner, you know, but <laughs> it doesn't take a, it doesn't take a com- FTC commissioner to know that, you know, if, if you, if you venture into those waters, you know, you're going to get your wrist slapped, uh, and, uh, um, if they were just doing the energy drink, fine. But now they've got this additional uh, drink with all this caffeine in it. You know, it doesn't look good for the for the for, for Logan Paul and company. Well, especially too, like the the cans are neon colored, and like the ads are admittedly fun. They're fast paced. They're they're cut together really well and stuff. And it's like, yeah, if I was twelve again, that would be really appealing to me. But I'm not, and I at least you know I understand what it means to have 200 milligrams of caffeine. I don't think a, a child does. This also does come to mind. Lesh and I were talking about this offline, but I think it does bear bringing up is that this is not the first time that Logan Paul has been involved in controversy. Obviously, I think the one that comes to mind is when he went to the suicide forest in uh, Japan back at the end of 2017. And that almost got him thrown off of YouTube. Obviously, that wasn't the case. YouTube said he hadn't violated the three strikes policy, but he came out there with multiple apology videos. And that was, I mean, 
you talk about a PR faux pas. Yeah, I, I kind of thought he had been canceled a long time ago. So I was sort of surprised to see his name come back up, sort of <laughs> linked to this, you know, this really popular new energy drink. Uh, after a conversation on energy drinks, I think it's probably best that we throttle down and end the episode that way. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to have a little liquid death now. Exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have some decaf tea. So everyone pour yourself some chamomile yeah. and enjoy the rest of your day. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs> <laughs>